there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. We're doing more cleaning than ever before, but it's hard to find eco-friendly cleaning products that actually work. Check out Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. They have over 10,000 five-star reviews. Drops contains powerful cleaning from nature using plant and mineral-based formulas, all delivered to your door in low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. Sign up for auto shipments of Drops, laundry pods, and dishwasher pods to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. Use code FRIENDS for 25% off your first order. That's Drops with two Ps. Check out all their custom cleaning solutions for every need. Visit Drops.com and enter code FRIENDS to get to 25% off your first order today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. Our guest this week is Moby. He has been around for a while, and he's known for a few things, including his music and his animal rights activism. But this interview isn't about any of the things you think you know about him. This interview is about hitting bottom, getting sober, and what happens when fame isn't enough to fill the gaping hole inside you. These are all issues that come up in his new autobiographical film, Moby Doc, which is in limited release in theaters. He also has a new album, Reprise, which is made up of acoustic and orchestral remixes of his own music. I'm going to throw in a content warning for discussion of depression and suicidal ideation, but please know the conversation itself is not dark. It's pretty hopeful. And it's coming right up. Moby, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I saw your movie. Uh, I have so many questions. And the first one I want to start with is you kind of open by saying this isn't going to be just another biopic by some weird musician, right? So I wonder, when you were going into this, what did you want to do differently? How well, did you I, want to make it different? So I had been a documentary judge at the Tribeca Film Festival. I was a doc judge for the International Documentary Association. So in the course of my life, I've watched way too many music documentaries. And some of them are delightful, 
but structurally they're all sort of the same. And they all tell the story largely through talking heads, you know, interviews and archival footage. And which can be great for some subject matter. Like if you're watching a documentary about Nina Simone, you want to see archival footage, you want talking heads, but it becomes this sort of very repetitive trope. And so the director, Rob and I, when we started working on Moby Doc, and I apologize for the pun, it's just, it's the best (laughs) name we could come up with. Um, And when we started working on it, we sort of had these relatively like modest goals. One was to make it unlike any other music doc that we'd seen, which the reason that's a modest goal is our goal was not to make it better than other music docs, just to simply (laughs) make it different. Um, The other was to try and be honest, you know, the idea of being of service, which I guess at some point we'll talk about when we get into the 12 step section. Um, And the third was, and this is going back to my days of like, when I was a philosophy major, I briefly went to SUNY Purchase, State University of New York at Purchase, and they had an experimental film program. And I got, what's the word? Is it inculcated, indoctrinated, basically brought into the world of experimental film and realized that conventional narrative structure in film is largely, is arbitrary. You know, and you can play with devices as much as you want. There doesn't have to be a three-act narrative. You know, there's nothing that you have to do in making a movie. And we found that to be really creatively emancipating or liberating. And so those were the, the three goals, largely informed by the fact that I've watched way too many music documentaries. Was there anything you specifically didn't want to do? Well, the heartbreaking thing is we went out and we interviewed about 50 people from friends, people I'd worked with, fans. And after watching them, we realized we didn't want to use any of them except for David Lynch. We interviewed David Lynch and we sort of thought, you know, if David Lynch is willing to be interviewed for our movie, we have to use his talking head footage. So the only, <clears throat> the only traditional interview in the movie is with David Lynch, which by definition is untraditional. Why do this? You've seen a thousand music documentaries, but you have something to say. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the core and boy, oh boy, I always, I I do all this sort of self editing in my head and I don't know if it's a function of being an uptight, anxious wasp from Connecticut or what, but like, so I'm going to try not to edit too much, especially (laughs) because you are that word that I don't know implicated in the 12 step world as well. So the ultimate You can use the jargon with me if you want. Okay. Um, (laughs) Easy does it. Uh, So with like I've written a couple autobiographies with this documentary. The idea is simply to share experience, strength, and hope, you know, and the way that's translated is talking about my experience with the human condition and how basically you could almost say, broadly speaking, there are two facets of the human condition, which I know is an overly broad thing to say, but they're sort of like the objective and the subjective, you know, like, an individual's experience of the human condition as opposed to the shared experience of the human condition. And 
regardless of whether it's collective or individual, the human condition is baffling, you know, <laughs> and, and so we all have these ways of managing our experience of the human condition, you know, and sometimes that's a result of specific trauma. And sometimes it's just being alive for a few decades in a universe that's 15 billion years old, you know, being mm. descended from scared monkeys makes us by definition, scared monkeys. And so the idea is to sort of say, you know, that the, again, the 12 step thing of like, what was it like then? What did I do? What's it like now? That's so really Moby Doc is a surreal 12 step testimonial. I'm going to impose some conventional narrative here because I want to talk about your childhood a bit. The movie goes way back to that. Like you do talk mm -hmm. about um, pretty early childhood on. And I think it's safe to say it was a traumatic childhood. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a ton of perspective because I've only had my childhood and when I was growing up, I thought I was the only poor, literally, you know, poor as in like on food stamps and welfare. I thought I was the only poor person in the world because I lived in Darien, Connecticut, the most affluent town in the United States. And so growing up on food stamps and welfare, being physically abused, um, just having a lot of, you know, like trauma and stuff around me, I thought it was all normal and I thought everybody else was fine. So one thing I've learned as I've gotten older, and this is so self-evident, is that everybody's had struggles. You know, mine might be a little more dramatic and a little more obvious, but like other people have struggled as well. And I've, because for a while, and I don't know if you ever went through this, but for a while, I thought that my historical pain, my struggle, my PTSD sort of justified a lot of self-involvement. And a lot of bad behavior. You know, I had an ex-girlfriend who actually wrote me this line once. She said, what was it? Um, are you, you know, something about, are you hurt enough to justify your cruelty? And I was like, oh, God, you're absolutely right. Like, I'm using past pain to justify present narcissism and bad behavior. And... So, so that's my only hesitation saying like, yes, my childhood was traumatic. Um, it shaped who I am, but I have to assume, but it, but I have to assume that everybody has experienced their own unique type of dysfunction and trauma. I think that having an alcoholic household and your father die when you were pretty young, I think those are objectively tough things to live through. Yeah, now, was, I, but, I, some, but I love was, and there was the, some sexual sorry. abuse as well. There's, mm -hmm. you know, like just a lot of, yeah, a lot of really like, and sorry, I apologize for interrupting, but it reminded me when I finally went to therapy after so many years of thinking I was perfectly fine, I go to therapy on the Upper West Side of New York and I started talking about my childhood to my therapist. And at one point I looked up and he had this look of horror on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, like, wow, like, what sort of child do you have to have to get this, like, 70-year-old Upper West Side therapist who's heard everything to respond with shock and horror? Like I said, I think objectively pretty tough. Mm -hmm. But I do love the observation, everyone has it tough in some way, right? 
Uh, and I think that is a really valuable lesson of the rooms in a way too. Um, so I was wondering though, one of the things that got you through this time was the animals of your household, right? They were your emotional yeah. support animals before we had that term. Yeah. I mean, I, at an early age, um, it makes me think a little bit of the Terminator movie. Do you remember the first Terminator movie by any chance? where mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator goes into the world and he's looking for Sarah Connor. And so he looks at everything in the world and if it's not Sarah Connor, it doesn't register to him. And so I sort of had this filter as a child where it was like something either felt safe or unsafe. Even if I didn't have that language back then, you know, I didn't know that that existed, but I gravitated towards the things that provided comfort and felt safe and stayed away from the things that didn't feel comfortable and felt unsafe. So at an early age, safety was animals, music, books, and being outside. Unsafe was humans and everything pertaining to the world of humans. (laughs) (laughs) So that sounds familiar to me as well. And I know for me... The next discovery was chemicals as a way of being safe in the world. It was a suit of armor, and uh, among other things. Is that something that happened for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, well, it, it depends how we're defining chemicals. If we're talking about like rotten Mind altering chemicals. Rotten produce <laughs> drinks. You know, like basically, yeah, like I remember so clearly... I'm not going to name names because even though this was like 40 some odd years ago, when I was, I think, 10 years old, nine nine or 10 years old, I was at a New Year's Eve party at a friend's house. And my friend's mom gave me a glass of champagne, relatively innocent, hand the 10 year old a glass of champagne. And I drank it. And I remember thinking so clearly, I was like, what is this magic? Like, Like, how has this one bubbly drink fixed everything and so I quickly had three glasses of champagne and then that night I remember like I was in the bunk bed with my you know like he had bunk beds with like probably Battlestar Galactica sheets and I was falling asleep and I just remember thinking to myself I never want to not feel this way mm-hmm. at that point someone should have just given me a copy of the big book and said like go out <laughs> like do what you're gonna do but like at some point, you know, we'll save a seat for you. It's I've always found it fascinating and it yet never fails that those for those of us for whom, you know, drugs and alcohol have that effect, that life changing effect. We never forget that first time. It's just. And then, so that was the first alcohol time. The first drug time was so legal and so delightful. It was laughing gas at the dentist's. I was, I think, again, 10 or 11 years old, having some teeth pulled. And they gave me the laughing gas. And I actually do remember this, walking out of the dentist's office and saying something similar, like, that was so great. Why can't we do that every day? Mm-hmm. And a friend of my mother's or someone saying, oh, you watch out. She says, like, just be careful because that can be, you know, that could be like, she probably knew that even at 11, like I was bound for the, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Something I've heard, I wonder what you think of it is the idea that, you know, normal people use drugs and alcohol to feel good. 
addicts and alcoholics use drugs and alcohol to feel normal. <laughs> I've never heard that before, but that is succinct and accurate. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, and, but I, would, I say you could expand on it because, of course, like alcohol and drugs made everything flawless. But they also, I mean, alcohol for me, especially like I love drugs. The only drug I never liked was marijuana. The only drug, I mean, I tried everything. The only drug I actively disliked. Of course, I kept doing it, but I didn't like it. (laughs) Um, But alcohol was such a magical chemical because like if I needed to wake up, it woke me up. If I needed to calm down, it calmed me down. It gave me insights that I thought were so sublime. It could be psychedelic. It could, it did, it was this, it was almost like the ultimate adaptogen. Like it just did whatever I wanted it to do, which is of course why it took so many decades to be rid of it. We need to bump in for a quick commercial break. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Now, I grew up a latchkey kid, and there were definitely some downsides, but there was one big bonus. When I got home from school, I could have any snack I wanted. And what I wanted were Little Debbie peanut butter wafer bars and or Honey Nut Cheerios, which was the only sweet cereal my mom would buy. Now, today, having cereal in the afternoon is a way for me to reset my entire day. And because I can buy any cereal I want, I can have the taste of those peanut butter wafer bars in my cereal. I just mix up some Magic Spoon peanut butter and cocoa, and it's one-stop childhood nostalgia, but healthier. Now, Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. There's only 140 calories in each serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. Now, you can build your own box if you want a variety of flavors, including cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and blueberry, and cinnamon. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. Be sure to use promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode episode. With Friends Like These is brought to you by UE Fits. One of my greatest concessions to capitalism is that I still believe there is some gadget out there that will solve all my problems. And so I have to keep trying a lot of them. And I don't give up because every once in a while I find a piece of tech that doesn't solve all my problems, but it solves a lot of them. And I use it every day. There's my Kindle, my Apple Pencil, my popcorn air popper. With how much we rely on devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. The ear. Like with fingerprints, no two are exactly alike. That's why, unless you've paid thousands for high-end custom-fit equipment, your earbuds probably cause you some discomfort or even physical pain. The UE Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds from Ultimate Ears are here to change that. They are custom fit, which means they fit my weirdly tiny ears. And for the first time, I can wear earbuds while I do yoga, and I don't have to be paranoid if I wear them jogging. Now, I have used some good earbuds. I have paid a lot for good earbuds, but I've also lost a lot of earbuds. With UE Fits, that's not going to happen. 
You get a guaranteed perfect fit in 60 seconds. UE fits will stay put when you're on the go, but feel ultra comfortable so you can wear them all day long without pain or discomfort. Using groundbreaking light form technology, UE fits molds to the unique contours of your ear. Put them in, connect the app, watch the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, UE Fits are perfect for listening to your favorite shows like this one all day long. Built on industry-leading expertise trusted by pro musicians and hi-fi enthusiasts for over 25 years. If you try them and don't love them, no worries. They offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, you'll get free shipping, free returns, and a year warranty. For a limited time, get 15% off your pair of UE Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FRIENDS at checkout. That's 15% off UE Fits True Wireless Earbuds with promo code FRIENDS at ue.com fits. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. So I'm curious about how music sort of feeds into the use. I, I, people ask me all the time about um, my addiction and recovery in my writing. So I'm sure you must have given it some thought. At first, it was different than what it became. And I wonder what that story is for you. Well, there are two aspects to that in a weird way. Um, one is the practical aspect of weirdly, as a crazy alcoholic addict, I never performed drunk and I never worked on music drunk or high. Um, I tried once and I didn't like it, but so it was the only thing in my life that I carved out. Like, and I don't know what was going on in my brain that enabled me to do that because every other part of my life was completely affected by being drunk or high, you know, nothing, nothing was exempt except for working on music. I don't know what weird little protective mechanism existed in my brain around that. But having said that, my approach to music was completely corrupted, not necessarily by drinking, but by the thinking around it. Mm -hmm. You know, almost you could say the utility of alcohol and drugs, which was largely control, trying to trying to fix things, trying to, you know, to control the world around us, you know, like that. that, Manage, we say sometimes. You know, like the in in the big book with Bill Wilson's funny old language about like the guy who like rents the theater and hires the ballet and writes everything. You know, it's like it's all control. And so what and especially on 2000, 2001, 2002, when I had a degree of success, I decided that in order to be happy, I needed to keep the success train going. 
And so I started thinking of music as a way of doing that. And I compromised my approach to making music. You know, I started thinking about record sales. I started thinking about radio play. Luckily, I wasn't good at it, you know? <laughs> and so I never really, like, whenever I had air quote commercial success, it was accidental. Like, I could never construct it. And that sort of drove me crazy that I couldn't intentionally write hit singles. I couldn't intentionally make hit albums. If something was successful, it almost was in spite of my efforts. But nonetheless, I kept trying. I was like, okay, I'll hire a new publicist and they'll keep me famous. And I'll collaborate with this person. They'll keep me famous. Um, And so that's the alcoholic part of the control. You know, that crippling. It's basically the trying to control the universe because you assume that the universe needs to be controlled. And then the cornerstone, if I had to say like the cornerstone of my sobriety, apart from being an alcoholic, but the cornerstone is recognizing that the universe doesn't need to be controlled and that I'm really bad at trying to control it. Like looking at the universe from my place of abject lack of omniscience, you know, no objectivity and me looking at something and saying, I know how it should be. And I found that there's like that almost like spiritual chiropractory readjusting when you realize like, oh, I'm not looking at the universe. I'm looking at my fears. I'm looking at my perceived inadequacies. And it makes the world a lot more gentle when you come to that realization where like, I can go into the world and try and make things better with the full understanding that I'm just like a scared idiot monkey that knows nothing. There's a wonderful freedom and peace and humility, basically. And, and, And a humility that is the product of decades of hubris fueled failure. You know, like, like it's one thing to say like, like spiritual people who are like, Oh, I'm humble. Like I'm, and I'm like, Oh, I'm humble. Cause I was so bad at trying to control things. You know, like I saw my failures so many times up close. It makes it really hard to trust in my ability to fix things, you know? Yeah. I know how things work when I'm in charge. So yeah. maybe not me. The way that I sometimes term my surrender, I won't tell you my whole story, but um, the big moment was uh, in an ER uh, when I realized I'd run through options A through Z. And all my big brain had tried everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I had this thought, okay, you drive. Universe. Yeah. You know, I'm done. You drive. And uh, it didn't necessarily feel good. Like when you have a fight, when you're driving someplace and you have a fight about directions, giving up that fight isn't necessarily great. But oh, it's ter- I mean, it's <laughs> giving up the familiar, even if the familiar is destroying you, is still terrifying, you know? And, mm-hmm. it's so, and, it, and it doesn't happen right away. You know, like, you know, like you can hand the wheel over to the universe and then I have then spent the next 13 years trying to sort of like grab it back at times saying like, okay, you drive, we're like, we're coming up to a straightaway 
everything looks fine. You drive there. But after that, I think I might need to take it back because we're getting into some complicated terrain. And, but there are those moments when like, when I've wanted to take the control back, because it's really easy to say to the universe, to the, the divine, whatever that might be, say like your will be done, but then to carve things out. Mm-hmm. You know, to say like your will be done in a general sense, but these things are important. So my will be done around that. But when I've been able to say your will be done everywhere with all things and mean it, mm-hmm. there's a, again, that sense of like, oh, and then when, and again, it's a very dangerous thing to talk about because I don't want to anthropomorphize the universe. And obviously like I had dinner a few years ago with Sam Harris and his wife, and I used the word God during dinner. They were horrified. Um, and afterwards, I was like, oh, they're right. Like, why do I use that word when it's the word that has caused more trouble in human history than basically anything else? But nonetheless, I still use that word with no idea what it means. Um, but uh, wait, where was I? Sam Harris? Uh, Bit um, of a universe oh, in control. Actually, I have a question. I can interrupt with a question very, unless you very, remember where you're going. Just very quickly is okay. the realization of like, there's the universe. I don't want to anthropomorphize it, but my experience of it is it's phenomenal and inclined towards gentleness, which is not how I saw things when I was like pre-sobriety, pre-therapy, pre-work. That's not how I, you know, I saw it as being like, you know, a Nietzschean void that at best you could just run away from. I'm curious what your carve outs are. Oh, I don't have any anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. I don't think so. I mean, like there, even if like the stuff, like for example, like in a perfect world, I'll never be buried alive in a perfect world. I will never be sentenced to time in a supermax prison. In a perfect world, I will keep my feet until the day I die. So, like, I would really like not to be buried alive. I'd really like to keep my feet. I'd really like not to go to a supermax prison. But if these things happen, I hope I'd be able to say, okay, fuck, I hate this, but your will be done. I hope. You know, like, I really... But then again, if I'm on fire, it'd be really hard to say, wow, your will be done. I probably would just want someone to put out the fire. And forgive my kind of sarcasm or incredulousness there. It's just that the carve-outs are really hard, I think, for a lot of people. And it's something that I have to work on all the time. Mm-hmm. And let me share where one of mine is, because I'd love to get your in- insight on it. Um, and perhaps you can counsel me, which is politics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I, I have saying, a really I, hard yeah. time, like, allowing things to happen in the political world and believing like, oh no, yeah, um, the universe wanted Donald Trump to be elected. Well, you know, the universe was okay with that. Okay. So that's very interesting because I think it almost makes me think of a New Testament quote that I like, and I'm not a Christian in any real sense of the word. I mean, I, I used to be a very serious Christian. I taught Bible study, but now I'm a, a, Taoist who's fascinated by quantum mechanics. Like I, you know, I love Christ and the character of Christ. I really don't like institutional. He's a cool dude. Yeah. So there's one quote that I love in the new Testament, 
which is so wonderfully paradoxical, which is be as innocent as doves and as wise as foxes. It doesn't say either or, it says both. And so what I would say is like, it, it reminds me of, I had this philosophy teacher once who talked about naive realism. Mm-hmm. And he would say that like ontologically, he can deconstruct anything. He can prove to you that nothing exists, you know, that nothing has inherent qualities, that there's no mass, that there's no color, that there's no, you know, that nothing exists. He said he can point to a bus and deconstruct the bus, but he's still going to get out of the way of the bus. And so what I would say is like, when I go into things, I go into things personally as a flawed human being with limited perspective, but I just constantly ask like divine, whatever you are, your will be done. And so if I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that Donald Trump is not reelected, I'm still asking your will be done, you know? And mm-hmm. like, it's hard to say like whether Trump being elected was that divine will or did that just happen? Was that just a shitty thing that happened? And the divine kind of like when an, an organism gets sick, is the illness divine will or is the immune system fighting against the illness a better expression of divine will? Cause I granted maybe cause we're on the same team, but like, I would say us fighting against the Trumps and Marjorie Taylor Greens and Matt Gates's um, and Steve Bannon's, et cetera, of the world. Like I'd say we're acting like an immune system. You know, like we're horrified. We're white blood cells saying like, these are wrong. These are not supposed to be in our body, but with the understanding, if they are, I hope that I'm corrected in my process. Mm-hmm. That's at least that's I don't know if that's in any way relevant or helpful, but that's my perspective. I like the metaphor, the illness metaphor. And I think you've also helped me understand what was going to be another question sort of along these lines, which is being an animal rights activist in a world where animals are treated so cruelly all the time, every day, that it must how does one continue? to go on yeah but it sounds a little bit like there might be some parallel thinking there i mean it's that's i would say from i mean you could i was gonna say that's my one of my biggest personal challenges not to make it about me but i'm a narcissist we're talking about you so it's okay go ahead so (laughs) it's really hard when they're like over a trillion animals are killed by and for humans every year and in the process, not only are a trillion animals killed, but like the rainforest is cut down, climate change is exacerbated, antibiotic resistance goes through the roof, water use is out of control, pandemics are started, cancer, diabetes, heart, like all the consequences of humans killing animals it doesn't just affect the animals, it's destroying us. So to mm-hmm. sit back and observe it and want it to that want that to no longer be the case. Sure, if I dwell on it, it would make my brain break. But all I can say to myself is like, look, I'm I'm one little guy. I do what I can. I think this is a good time for us to take a quick break. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Osea Skincare. My friends, 
I love this line of skincare. Now, they have beautiful serums and cleansers for your face, but that is not what sold me. What sold me is the body oil and the sea salt scrub. I have tried sea salt scrubs before, and most of them just feel like rubbing oily salt against your skin. But Osea's sea salt scrub smells absolutely amazing, gently buffs your skin, not, you know, scratches it, and it leaves behind just enough oil to soften without feeling sticky or gross. I am almost out of my first tub of it, and I don't know when I have ever, 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 ever finished a whole thing of scrub before. When I need some hydrating and softening out of the shower, there's Andaria Algae Body Oil. Again, it's not oily somehow. It's light. It smells great. It leaves the tiniest bit of shine. They recommend using it on any body art you may have. And my fellow tattooed people, it somehow kind of freshens up the ink. Tattoo season is starting, so uh, get ready to show them off. You are babying your skin with Andaria algae, Acia pulp, and Babasu seed oil. It's liquid gold, a rich, luxurious, never greasy body oil, fragrant with sunny citrus and top notes of sweet passion fruit. Osea creates skincare and body care products powered by the sea. They've made clean, safe skincare products since 1996. It's vegan and cruelty-free. It's responsibly sourced, plant-derived ingredients, good for your skin and for the planet. Female-founded and family-operated by a mother and daughter team. You can try Osea risk-free for 30 days and get free shipping on orders over $50. They even send free samples with every order. And get 10% off your first order with my promo code FRIENDS at oseamalibu.com. That's 10% offer code friends at Osea Malibu, O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com. Oseamalibu.com, promo code friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Olipop. Olipop is soda for grownups. It has all the flavors you loved as a kid, vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, and strawberry vanilla, but formulated so they're not as sweet and more complex for a grown-up palate. Now, I do not drink alcohol, and it is kind of hard to find drinks that still feel like a special occasion, something I can really savor and enjoy. Olipop is something I can savor, and it's good for me. They use functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fiber, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. 90% of Americans consume more than the USDA's daily recommended added sugar intake, 30 grams. Sweetened beverages, like soda, are the leading source of added sugars in the American diet. Olipop only has 2 to 5 grams of sugar. Their vintage cola has just 2 grams. A regular Coca-Cola has 39 grams of sugar. Orange Fanta has 44 grams of sugar. And Olipop's Orange Squeeze has 5. All of their products are non-GMO, vegan, paleo, and keto-friendly with less than 8 net grams of carbs per can. They are so confident you will love their product, they offer a 100% money-back guarantee for orders placed through the website. We have worked out an exclusive deal for With Friends Like These podcast listeners. Receive 20% off plus free shipping on their best-selling variety pack. This is a great way to try all of their delicious flavors. Go to drinkolipop.com friends or use code FRIENDS at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash FRIENDS. This discount is only valid for the variety pack. Olipop can also be found in over 3,000 stores across the country, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger, Wegmans, and Air One. But you're going to want to use that offer code FRIENDS online. 
you seem to have had a few times that were pretty low. Um, you oh, talk sure. about in, in the movie. Um, I'm just going to, off the top of my head, there's waking up covered in shit. Uh, that sounds bad. Well, uh, to qualify that a little bit, as I describe in the movie, I woke up covered in poop. I don't actually know whose poop it is. So I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Good context. <laughs> Good context. Mm-hmm. And then more seriously, you missed your mother's funeral. Yeah. Um, but I didn't just, again, to qualify it a little bit, I didn't just miss my mom's funeral. I sort of slept through it because I was drunk, hung over. I was hung over and drunk. You know, the, which really there should be a word like in, there's a word in sleeping. You know the word hypnagogic? It's no. a great word. Hypnagogic is a state between waking and sleeping. Hmm. Why that word never existed between drunk and hungover? Because it like, it's not like someone <laughs> like flips a switch and you're hungover. Like there's that period, we'll call it like the 8 a.m. period where you're like, actually no, like maybe the 1 p.m. period where you're like, you're still very drunk, but you're also very hungover. So that's why I missed my mom's funeral because I was passed out in bed in that state. Yes. Uh, And then there is a time when you are in Barcelona for the MTV Music Awards and you are so completely hopeless and despairing. You're contemplating suicide, but the windows of the hotel room. Didn't open wide enough. Didn't open open enough. Which I think is really funny. I mean, at the time, I actually felt like even more of a failure. I was like, so to contextualize that a bit, <laughs> it was 2002. I was sort of at the height of this lunatic level of commercial success. Like, I was winning awards. I had platinum records on my wall. I was staying in this crazy hotel suite with Bon Jovi, Madonna, and P. Diddy as my neighbors on my floor. Um I was on, on a tour where I had my own tour bus and headlining arenas. It was as good as it gets for a professional musician. And I was so depressed. And I felt like such a failure because I didn't know why I was depressed. I was like, everything's great. Why am I so miserable? And so this one night in Barcelona, uh, I had won an MTV award and I'd been drinking. I was very drunk and I was back in my hotel suite. And I just thought like, okay, this isn't working, but I don't know what else to do. Like, like everything I've worked for has gotten me to this place. I've never been less happy, which is not, I'm not, by the way, if anyone's listening, or of course people are listening, but to the people who are listening, <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm not right. looking for pity. I'm just saying like, I was stumped. I was like, this is like, I'm affluent, successful, and drunk. Why am I not happy? And, and it just metastasized. And I decided, okay, you know what? I'm just going to throw myself out the window, just be done with it. And I went to all the windows in the hotel suite. And because it was like this fancy modern hotel, none of them opened more than about four inches. And then I was just like, oh, come on. I can't even figure out how to kill myself. Like, the, it's, I'm that much of a failure. So I have to take off my fellow pal of Bill Hat to ask this next question about that stuff. Okay. Because I think a normal person might say, all of those things sound so terrible, but none of them are the reason why you quit drinking. None of those things were your actual bottom. Oh, no. The, my bottom was still another like six years away. You want to explain what the actual bottom was? 
Oh, so the actual bottom was kind of mundane. And I wish I had a more dramatic bottoming out story. It was because I tried to get sober so many times. The first time I tried to get sober, I was 14 years old. I'd had a really rough night with my friend Dave, and it ended up with him being intubated by EMTs. And the next morning, I was so upset that I was like, okay, that's it. No more drinking, no more drugs. <coughs> so at 14, my only claim to fame as an alcoholic is I think my first sobriety date was before most people ever started drinking. So, but it kept going. I kept having new sobrieties. And then in the like four years before I got sober, I had multiple, multiple attempts, like going to AA, do, going to therapy, trying different things. And then finally, and I wish it was more dramatic because I'm afraid I'm going to bore you and, and the people who are listening. I had played a fundraiser for Kristen Gillibrand uh, when she was running for Senate. Um, still never met her. I just played this fundraiser. She was there. I think she left because I was saying horrifying things on stage about Republicans. But um, so I played the fundraiser, started drinking, ended up going out in Hudson, New York and drinking more, buying drugs, being given the drugs that were given to me. And the next morning I was taking Amtrak back to the city. And it was, as I'm sure you've experienced and possibly some of the people listening have experienced, I was so sick that like mm -hmm. the sickness unto death the sickness where like your cells hurt you can't think straight you can't distract yourself like you, you drink coffee you can't read a magazine because the words are moving around you can't listen to music because you're in too much chemical physical hungover pain and i realized i had been that way a few thousand times and all of a sudden i was like i'm done i'm like this is mm -hmm. like i've looked at the evidence has confronted me so aggressively for so many years. It's time to finally be done. And then I walked into an AA meeting. I went back to New York and went to this AA meeting on First Avenue and First Street in a yoga studio. And that's when I was done. See, I actually think it's really important to tell the boring bottom stories. Because I think it's good for people to need, they need to understand that those dramatic ones don't necessarily do it. Yeah, I mean, I had the dramatic ones, and and the dramatic ones are very anecdotal and fun. Um, and I love hearing people's like going to meetings and hearing great dramatic stories. Like some of them are just, as you know, it's the best theater in the world, and it costs a dollar. And we're all such hams. Yeah, <laughs> and I love when when like when people are really good at telling their story, and it leads to like the most horrifying comedic places. Like that's the other thing I think people don't fully understand about sobriety is like when we tell our stories, usually we're laughing, mm -hmm. you know, like we so are not a glum of, lot. Yeah. We, we, I mean, some of us, myself included can be, but generally speaking, <laughs> like the more degrading, the more disgusting, the worse the story, like the more we laugh. Mm -hmm. Even sometimes when it's true horror, I mean, like, I just remember this one, this isn't a funny one, but this was like what, it was such a horrifying story. And I remember the people around me in the meeting just being like, like genuinely taken aback. Just, I was talking about how he'd gotten out of prison and he bought a bunch of whatever drug he was doing, probably an opiate, and went to a 
a hotel room with his girlfriend. They did a bunch of drugs. In the morning, he woke up because he had to like go look for work. He got a job like doing something, came back, and his girlfriend was asleep in bed. So he did some drugs, got in bed next to her, woke up the next morning, went to this new job, came back and realized his girlfriend had been dead for two days. So he'd spent two nights sleeping in bed next to a dead person. These are the stories that we hear in the middle of the afternoon in a weird church basement. And it makes my own stories about like waking up covered in poop and not knowing whose poop it is seem super benign by comparison. And even more hilarious. Really. And even, yeah, if it's poop as opposed to dead romantic partners lying in bed next to you, like the poop is comedy, dead person in bed, less so. <laughs> So I want to get back to the documentary and it actually weaves right in here because from what I can tell, like one of the main themes is this idea that we can never fill our existential portfolio, the term you use, to uh, the degree that it will make us happy. There is no amount of success, relationships, you know, uh, material things that will I mean, do it for us. What I will say, because I, I do need to qualify that just a tiny bit. What I will say is the majority of us, myself, I'll use myself as an example. Like I assumed that when I had the right stuff in my existential portfolio, that happiness would ensue. And so like most people, I spent my life trying to fill up my existential portfolio. And I thought it was, I even thought I had a slightly like rarefied idea of what that was going to be. It wasn't just as, it was the tawdry stuff, you know, it was like commercial success, a degree of affluence, but also like, I really wanted to like go to Paris review parties and have like, <laughs> you know, like dinners in Fort Greene with book editors. And like, you know, I wanted, and you know, a degree of erudition and sophistication around my existential portfolio. So then I had everything, you know, I had the Paris review parties. I had the rock star status and I wasn't happy. And then I started looking around and I realized it was super rare to find anyone. In fact, I don't know anyone who has basically ticked all the boxes and found happiness. You know, like, I mean, look at good old comrade Trump. Like, mm. you know, like your name is in gold letters on a whole bunch of buildings and you're the president of the United States and you're the least happy person on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd even say like, look at Jeff Bezos, like, you know what? Super happy people don't buy $500 million boats. You know, you buy a little boat and you sail around with your friends and it's great. Like you don't need a $500 million boat to do that. Elon hosting SNL and being obsessed with Bitcoins or whatever. Like <laughs> that's not what happy people do. Like it's this idea that always grabbing for the next thing and being able to free yourself from that and be liberated from it, to me, that is like the beginning of happiness and having true empirically supported compassion for the people who are still grabbing. So, you know, you have had a long career with um, uh, periods of intense stardom, as you've discussed. And I think it's safe to say a lot of people associate you with those particular moments in time. Right. Mm-hmm. But you also have a, you have a new album that is revisiting your career. I wonder what you want to be known for now. 
uh, I mean, I, I, to put it in a little bit of perspective, so when I was 17 years old, I played in a punk rock band in Connecticut called the Vatican Commandos. And like, if a good night for us was playing to 15 people. And in 1983, we released a seven-inch single called Hit Squad for God, which I really think is a great title. Um, and it sold probably around 150 copies. And we were thrilled. Like, this was success. That meant 150 people were listening to the music that we made. And then in the early 90s, the first single I ever put out sold around 1,000 copies. And I thought that was huge success because it was almost 10 times what the Vatican Commando single had sold. So my standards for recognition and success and even legacy are very, like almost non-existent. Um, so in terms of being remembered, there are only two things that I can think of. Well, three things. One, I hope that I've made music or will continue to make music that might connect with people emotionally. You know, whether I get paid for it, I don't care. Whether there's fame involved, I don't care. I just hope that, like, somehow I am creating or I've created something that someone has an emotional connection to. More importantly is trying to use whatever resources I have, time, influence, money, what have you, to help create a world where animals are allowed to live their own lives. Simply, that's it. Just, like... It's so, it's so easy. It's just like, oh, there's an animal. It is sentient. It has its own will. Let it go live its own life. That's it. And the third is much more ambitious, which is help. Because I, I look at humanity with, I mean, obviously not a ton of objectivity as, as far as I can tell I'm human. Um, I do have gills and I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm a robot. But apart from that... <laughs> So I look at humanity and I'm like, we are the worst because like in the last hundred years, we're burning through all our resources. The end result being we're less happy than we've ever been. You know, it's kind of like having a giant party where you burn down your house, but in the process, you're super unhappy and it's the worst party you've ever been to. And so I just, if there's a way that I can somehow help our fellow, us and our fellow humans to simply stop destroying the only home that we have. Like, and in the process, stop destroying each other and stop destroying the other creatures on the planet. It's just, I don't know how to accomplish that. And I'm not saying I can accomplish it single-handedly, but if I can move the needle a micron, I don't want to be remembered for it. I would just like to be able to do that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. On this week's With Adorables Like These, you will hear from one of our all-time favorite With Friends Like These guests, Mina Kimes, and her diminutive blonde chihuahua mix, Linny. Take a listen to learn more about how this is not actually Linny's first brush with podcasting fame. How long have you been companions and where did you get Lenny. So Lenny is from Alabama. And I hope, I, I hope, I, I often wonder if he thinks in a Southern accent. 
And I also wonder if he was raised a, a Bama fan or an Auburn fan. I have no idea. But I adopted him in 2014. I was living in New York at the time, and it was through like a shelter exchange program because it was kind of like a supply-demand thing. Alabama had a lot of dogs. New Yorkers wanted the dogs. So the shelter, it was a shelter in the Bronx. They said, all right, the dog you found, his name was Taz on the internet. He is available, but you have to wait at like this street at this time. And I was like, this is really weird. But I waited. I remember it was after a Seahawks game. I was wearing a Seahawks jersey. And then a van came wheeling around the corner and he jumped out of the van with a handler. They let me walk him around the block once. And then I had to make a decision on the spot. So it was all very sus. And the next day I realized he had not been fixed and I couldn't see in the night. And also he was a lot more honorary, honorary, uh, cranky than he seemed the night that I adopted him. So that's Lenny's origin story with me. Is there a story behind the name? Um, so my husband, he's a music producer and it's not that he's a Lenny Kravitz fan. It's that he just always kind of liked his persona. And, um, he also was a Phillies fan. So there was Lenny Dykstra. Uh, so there were these two prominent Lennies in our life. And I just thought, why not? Lenny's a good dog's name. So we all believe that all animals are emotional support animals. Is there any particular way in which Lenny is your emotional support animal? Well, every way. But I can tell you a specific story, which is um, after the Seahawks lost the Super Bowl to New England, um, Super Bowl 49. Uh, so I'd had Lenny for a couple years then, I guess. But I watched the game at a bar about a mile from my house in Greenpoint. I'd been there all day. Interception happens at the end. I was with a group of people. So the interception happens. I wait for the replay, stand up, put down some money, button my jacket, and just walked out. And it was snowing in New York. I didn't say a word to anyone. And I walked a mile home crying sobbing as the snow fell on my face. And I swear to God, right when I walked in, Lenny just like, it was like being hugged, but he just knew that something terrible had happened. And usually when, he, when I come home, he like barks and claws. He just jumped right into my lap and licked the tears off of my face because he sensed that I was in probably the deepest pain he had ever seen. Does your adorable have a voice? And will you please speak in the voice of your oh God. adorable? There's a story. So my podcast is called The Mean and Kind Show featuring Lenny. And when I did it for the first year, Lenny, he always asks a question at the end. It's always very rude, but I would do it in his voice. And gradually, as I had more prominent guests, especially guests who weren't my friends, I came to dread this moment because it's fucking humiliating. And it came to a head when I had Matt Hasselbeck, former Seattle Seahawks quarterback, ESPN colleague on the podcast. So we're talking, we're talking. I'm trying not to geek out because, you know, it's like Matt Hasselbeck. And I'm dreading, like, I'm going to have to ask this, this man a question in my dog's voice. And after that day, I never did, I, I stopped, I cut the dog's voice. And my listeners are furious. It took them a long time to get over it. They said I had silenced Lenny. Lenny erasure. Lenny erasure. You, you joke. That was <laughs> a very, a phrase I got a lot. It's very negative reviews, but I'll do it for you. Finally, I'm speaking again. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, I'm hungry. You can have him uh, say uh, donate to the LA Food Bank or whatever it is that you would like to donate to the Los Angeles Food Bank on my behalf. I would think that even famous people would be charmed by the Lenny. The problem is it's a rude question. Oh. So not only are you doing the voice, you're being like, Matt Hasselbeck, how 
about that time that you said you were going to get the ball and you're going to score? And then he's like, the fuck? What did I sign up for? And you're like, I don't know. (laughs) I swear to God, I'm a professional. And that is it for the show. Thanks to Moby for coming on. You can see his film Moby Doc in limited release in theaters, and it will be streaming soon. Also, thanks to Mina and Lenny. We are a production of Crooked Media. Allison Herrera is our senior producer. Jordan Waller produces the adorable segment. And this episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Izzy Margulies does our booking. Whitney Pastrick would like you to vote for Wally in the Nashville scene superlative pet contest, where he is up for best smile. You do not need to live in Nashville to vote. Please Google Nashville scene and pet contest. You'll find it. I hope you have an adorable of your own and that you are taking care of each other. And of course, please take care of yourself. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.